So the Upajatana Sutta doesn't just have the five reflections that we should all reflect on. Um, it's, uh, has a, it's quite an interesting sutta in itself. So I'm going to give a talk on the sutta. I'm going to try and explicate the five reflections a bit more uh, because they're put very boldly in the sutta. And then we'll do a, a lead reflection on them. So let me just start immediately with what those five things are, just in case you don't know. Um, so the Buddha says, and he, he jumps straight in with this sutta, there's no lead up or anything, he just begins. There are these five facts that one should reflect on often, whether one is a woman or a man, lay or ordained. Which five? I am subject to ageing, have not gone beyond ageing. This is the first fact that one should reflect on often, whether one is a woman or a man, lay or ordained. I'm subject to illness, have not gone beyond illness. I'm subject to death, have not gone beyond death. I will grow different, separate from all that is dear and appealing to me. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and have actions as my arbitrator. Whatever I do, for good or for evil, to that I will for heir. These are the five facts that one should reflect on often, whether one is a woman or a man, lay or ordained. That's Tanisaro's um, translation. It's actually quite hard to find translations of the sutta on the net. I could only really find Tanisaro's. Um, there is an interesting article on, on Wikipedia on the Upajatana Sutta. It's got a few different translations of the five things that we should reflect on. And a few other places you can go, links to other places, which are very interesting. So that's worth looking at. So... It's in the uh, Anguttu Nikaya. It's the third section. Uh, Anguttu Nikaya 3, number 71. And of course it's in the section on the fives. Uh, so the sutta is in four sections. Firstly, the reflections, which I've just read out to you. Then the Buddha gives reasons for reflecting on them. And then you do the reflections again, this time reflecting that everyone is subject to these five things, these five facts. And then there's a verse at the end, somewhat autobiographical. So I'm going to go into each one of these. Firstly, there are these five facts that one should reflect on often whether one is a woman or a man, lay or ordained. Facts, these five facts. The, the word is uh, tana or tanani, which comes from the word tana, T-H, long A, N-A, tana, which can be translated as fact. It can also be translated as abode or state or condition. I like the last two of these. There are these five states or these five conditions that we should reflect on. Uh, and the word reflect on, that one should reflect on, is Pachavekadipani. Uh, from Pachaveki, which means to look upon, consider, review, realise, contemplate. And Pachavekana means looking at. It's an interesting way of translating it, looking at something. Uh, consideration, regard, attention. We should pay attention to these things. Reflection, contemplation, reviewing. Actually, the sutta has three names. There's the Upajatana Sutta, which um, Tanisaro translates subjects for contemplation. But it also has another name, and uh, what I like to do when I'm looking at a sutta, I like to look at the original Pali. Not that I know Pali very well, but I like to try and find the key terms. And there's a, there's a site, isn't there, on the net. You can find all the Pali suttas in Pali. 
uh, in Roman numerals, luckily for us. And I couldn't find this sutta for ages, and eventually I found it under a different name. Abhina Pacha Vekitabani Tana Sutang, <laughs> which translates roughly as should be constantly reflected on. And it also has a lovely short name, the Tana Sutang. Tana, you know now, fact or conditional state, Tana Sutang. So let's look at the first one. I am subject to hate aging, have not gone beyond aging. Very, very simple in a way. Um, so I looked up the Pali and it's Jara Damomi. That's the first bit. I'm subject to aging is Jara Damomi. So Jara, aging. Damomi, I couldn't figure out. I looked it up in the Pali dictionary. I couldn't find that word at all. It's a compound word and I just couldn't figure out what it meant. So uh, I wrote to Divan, Pali scholar in Cambridge, and uh, he wrote back saying he'd be delighted to help me because he reflects on, he, no, he chants in Pali this sutta every morning, which is impressive, isn't it? Very impressive. So he was really happy to help me. So Jawa Damomi uh, comes uh, from Dhamma Ami. Ami means I am. And Dhamma, you know what that means. Dhamma in, in the sense of thing, yeah? Not in the sense of teaching. So, I am a thing. I am a Dhamma which ages. That's the literal translation. I am a Dhamma that ages. So, um, Divan uh, offered the translation, I am the kind of thing that ages. So I really like that. That really made sense to me and really helped me with my reflections. I'm the kind of thing that grows old. Really like that. I'm a dhamma that ages. So that is usually translated as I'm subject to ageing. And then the second part is have not gone beyond ageing. Uh, the word beyond is uh, anatita. Atita, A-T, long I-T-A. Atita means beyond. Ana, tita, means not, not gone beyond. And uh, Divan suggests the translation, I have not escaped from ageing. You could say, I have not escaped from the fact of ageing. We'll come back to that later on. So this is the first um, reflection. I'm the kind of thing that ages... And I've not escaped from that. So, uh, I have a very nice poem by... It's by an American poet called A.R. Ammons. Not very well known. And it's called In View of the Fact. Fact. In view of the state or condition, you could say. The people of my time are passing away. My wife is baking for a funeral. A 60-year-old who died suddenly... When the phone rings, and it's Ruth we care so much about in intensive care. It was once weddings that came so thick and fast, and then first babies, such a hullabaloo. Now it's this, that and the other, and somebody else gone or on the brink. Well, we never thought we would live forever, although we did. And now it looks like we won't. Some of us are losing a leg to diabetes. Some don't know what they went downstairs for. Some know that a hired watchful person is around. Like some, some like to touch the cane tip into something steady. So nice. We have already lost so many. Brushed the loss of ourselves, ourselves. Our address books for so long, a slow scramble, now are palimpsests, scribbles and scratches, our index cards for Christmases, birthdays, Halloweens drop clean away into sympathies. At the same time we are getting used to so many leaving, we are hanging on with a grip to the ones left. We are not giving up on the congestive heart failure or brain tumours, on the nice old men left in empty houses or on the widows who decide to travel a lot. We think the sun may shine someday when we'll drink wine together and think of what used to be until we die 
we will remember every single thing, recall every word, love every loss. Then we will, as we must, leave it to others to love. Love that can go brighter and deeper till the very end, gaining strength and getting more precious all the way. It's a really lovely poem, that, isn't it, about ageing and love and loss. Um, I want you to remember that line, we never thought we would live forever, although we did. Just remember that line. So that's the first um, uh, reflection. I'm subject to illness, I've not gone beyond illness. The second one is I'm subject... Sorry, that's ageing. I'm subject to ageing, have not gone beyond ageing. The next one is I'm subject to illness, have not gone beyond illness. Same applies to that one as everything I've said in the first one. I'm subject to illness, have not gone beyond illness. I'm subject to death, have not gone beyond death. All the same things apply that I mentioned earlier. So... I'm the kind of thing that gets ill. I haven't escaped from that. I'm the kind of thing that dies. I have not escaped death. I have not escaped is uh, very interesting. We'll come back to that later. The fourth um, reflection. I will... I read you Tanisaro's. I will grow different, separate from all that is dear and appealing to me. Um, so the phrase is sabehi me pihehi manapehi nanabavo vinabavo go through it all uh, pihehi comes from pia Sanskrit priya you know what that means I think priya or pia uh, means dear beloved pleasant agreeable and the other word, uh, manapehi, uh, comes from the word manapa, and we have an order member, manapa, um, lovely man, uh, which means pleasing, pleasant, charming. So, pia manapa, all those things that we love, that we find agreeable or pleasant, manapa, uh, pleasant, charming, all the things in life that we love and hold dear to us. We're going to be parted and separated from them all. So that's the next translation. Uh, that's the next um, reflection. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? And one of the things I like about these um, reflections is that they are obvious. Um, they're not new to us. Um, they're not new teachings. They're things that we know, partly from our reading and study of the Dharma, but partly because we've been living long enough now to know that. We know that, there is, that we're ageing. We know that we're growing old. We know that we, we have got ill many times. And illness, of course, uh, we mustn't just think of illness as having colds and the flu, unpleasant as they are, but we know that there are much more serious and painful illnesses. Um, that are maybe just waiting for us now, even now as we sit here. There might be something going on in our body that we know nothing about that might cause us to just drop dead. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Manjushra here, who was leading um, a retreat, a Wolf at the Door retreat. I think he was speaking at the time and he just keeled over and a few hours later he was dead. Only a few hours. Who knows what's going on with our body at the moment? Who knows what chemicals are happening? Um, who knows what's in wait for us at any moment? So um, we, know, we know all that. Uh, so this isn't new stuff to us. But what the Buddha is saying is we, we should reflect on these conditions, these states, these facts often. We're going to be separated from everything that we love and hold dear. One way of doing this um, reflection is just to review, as you're meditating, all the things that you do hold dear. 
and find lovely and charming and agreeable in life. You know, maybe you love your home. Maybe uh, you have a sexual partner. Maybe you have uh, a son or a daughter. Um, maybe you really enjoy your work. Maybe you enjoy your friends. Uh, maybe you love the clothes that you wear. And maybe you've got a car that you're really, really fond of. All those things, just reviewing them. And just remembering that you will be parted from all of those things at a certain point. Yeah. Either at death or before. So the fifth um, reflection is, um, I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and have actions as my arbitrator, whatever that means. Whatever I do for good or evil to that I will for heir. So I'm just going to go into this one because the first four are fairly easy to understand. This one, after the first couple of things that the Buddha says, it becomes slightly difficult to understand what he's saying. And it partly depends on the translation. There are various translations of this. So um, the first one, I am the owner of my actions, is quite simple. You, uh, it's quite clear that the Buddha, that's what he's saying. You own your actions. Um, so there's a sense of uh, ownership. There's a sense of you possess what you do. Uh, the word for actions is karma. And uh, when I first began to do these um, reflections, it was quite interesting because as soon as I said that to myself, I am the owner of my actions, it was quite difficult to describe what happened, but it was as if there was a shift back here. You know what I mean? It's as if uh, somehow in my mind, I kind of think that I'm not the owner of all my actions. There's a sense in which it's not all my fault, as it were, out there. But it, when I was doing this, it suddenly, it just, it was as if it all came right back to me. I am the owner of my actions. I'll have more to say that, about that in a moment. Heir to my actions. I inherit my actions. Actually, we need to say that we inherit the consequences of our actions the results, the vipaka of our actions. And this, is, again, is quite clear. The word here is dayada, d long a y long a d a, which is receiving the son's portion. Uh, so kama dayada means inheriting the consequences of one's deeds. Then the next one, born of my actions, and this can be uh, treated either literally that when we're born, we come born into the world as inheritors of previous actions from previous lives. Uh, or it could be, you could see it more that every second we're born into a new life, initiation into a new life. We're born into a new life, and that new life comes about as a result of our previous actions in this life as well. So again, um, uh, it's kama yoni, Yoni, Y-O-N-I, is the womb, origin, way of birth, place of birth, realm of existence, nature, matrix. And uh, some translators here, instead of saying born of my actions, they say actions of our matrix. I don't know what people make of that when they read that. Actions of our matrix. Then the next one uh, after that is... Uh, uh, related through my actions. This is very interesting, uh, the way Tanisaro has translated that. The word is Kamabandu. And we have another word member, don't we? Kamabandu. So Kamabandu. Bandu, as you probably know, means um, relation, relative, kinsman. And quite a few translators translate this as uh, actions are my relative or actions are my companion. And one translator has, I'm related to my actions. This is interesting, but I think that Tani Sawa has got a very good way of translating it here. I'm related through my actions. So I'm related to everyone I know through my karma. That affects my relations. And of course, I'm also related to everyone I know through their karma, our actions relate us together. So that's a very interesting way of understanding it. But you can take your pick amongst those various ways of understanding it. 
And the final one, and have actions as my arbitrator. Uh, the word that Tani Salo translates as arbitrator is pati salana. You know what salana is? Refuge. Uh, so pati salana is usually translated as shelter, help, protection. And uh, kama pati salana is often translated as having kama as a place of refuge or as a protector. I find this really interesting that the first four reflections are the way things are. Yeah, it's just the way things are. The fifth one, there is something we can do. And actions are, you could say, our protector, our refuge through the vicissitudes of life. The only thing we can really rely on is the way we act through life. That will help us through ageing, illness, death and separation. That's the only thing that, in a sense, we take with us. It's the only refuge. So I really like that. Um, I prefer to translate uh, this one as actions are my refuge. My karma is my refuge. And then, whatever I do, for good or evil, to that I will fall heir. Good or evil, good is a translation of kalyana. Beautiful, charming, auspicious, helpful, morally good. And uh, evil is papa, of course, wretched, wicked, sinful. Um, so the first four are, you could say, the human condition. We're reflecting on the human condition. And the fifth one is what we can rely upon to help us in the human condition. Some of you know that I've been uh, reading um, Paul Gilbert, um, that wonderful man, clinical psychologist, who's been working within the NHS uh, with compassion, compassion training, and he's called it CFT, unfortunate title, um, very close to uh, CFK. CFT, compassion-focused training, and uh, he talks about their philosophical position and uh, Paul Gilbert has been very, very influenced by Buddhism in many ways. And you, you can see this, and he mentions the Buddha here in this. Um, he talks about three reality checks that we have to do. One is what he calls the evolved mind. And here he, he discusses the fact that our brains have evolved over millions of years. And we've got the kind of brain that we've got. We've got what's called the old brain and the new brain, simplifying greatly here. The old brain is all to do with survival, therefore aggression, fear, and so on. And we've got the new brain, which is much more self-reflective and includes kindness in it. But we've got both brains, yeah? And uh, sometimes we act with the old brain and sometimes with the new brain. You could say lower evolution and higher evolution. That's the first thing, and we have to be aware of that. The second reality check is he calls it tragic mind. The second reality, I'm going to quote here, the second reality check is that our lives are relatively short. 25,000 to 30,000 days if we are lucky. Interesting put that way, isn't it? 25,000 days. Hmm. We are caught in a genetic lottery which determines the length of our lives and the kind of illnesses we will suffer. Young daughters, wives and mothers may die early due to breast cancer genes. Leukemia, cystic fibrosis or malaria can rob families of their children. We are subject to a huge range of illnesses that can cripple us, rob us of our capacities for hearing or sight or kill us slowly. For example, AIDS, dementia. Humans have understood for a long time that in many ways we live a tragic life with much pain and suffering. Indeed, trying to explain why this should be has been at the root of many philosophical and spiritual traditions. I read that because I think he puts it very, very well. The third reality check he calls uh, social mind. The the fact that we live in a world of immense injustice and suffering. We know that the social circumstances of our lives play a huge role in how our brains mature. The values that we develop and the self-identities we, we grow into. 
If I had been born into a Mexican drug cartel, or somehow there'd been a baby swap at birth, the chances that I could now be dead, will have killed others, may be addicted to drugs myself, and or be living the rest of my life in prison. There would be no chance of the potential of what was in me to become a professor of psychology and a clinician ever coming to life in that environment. It's important to recognise and reflect on the fact that this you, in this life, is only one version of many that could have emerged the day you were born. So, um, I find that very interesting, especially when it comes to karma. Because the way we act very much depends on the kind of life we were born into. Um, I highly recommend the, the Wire, that uh, television series, five, five series actually, The Wire, which really shows in graphic detail how difficult it is to resist the kind of conditioning that you're born into. Um, there's one series, especially the third series on education, where they follow five children. It's not documentary, it's... Um, it's a, you know, a, a cop drama in a way, but um, it's, uh, they follow five um, young people uh, in a school and they follow their progress over a term and the, the immense uh, conditioning and pressures on them to go down the dark road. Um, and some of them do, uh, and one or two of them manage to get out, but it's extremely difficult to get out of one's social conditioning. So, anyway, so these are the five facts. It's time I moved on to the next part, which is the reasons for reflecting on them. So the Buddha makes it very clear. Now, based on what line of reasoning should one reflect that I am subject to aging, etc., etc.? The Buddha says there are beings who are intoxicated with a typical youth's intoxication with youth. Because of that intoxication with youth, they conduct themselves in a bad way in body, speech and mind. But when they often reflect on that fact, the youth's intoxication with youth will either be entirely abandoned or grow weaker. So looking around here, maybe we could skip this one. Uh, so intoxication is Madena. <laughs> None of us are youths. <laughs> uh, which comes from the word madder, which is intoxication. Uh, drink, mad, to get intoxicated. But it has a secondary meaning. The secondary meaning as mental state or habit of pride or conceit. Now this is really interesting, isn't it? That intoxication and conceit uh, are there together in the same word. And there must be some kind of um, connection between the two and uh, I think there is a connection actually you know when you're intoxicated if you can remember being intoxicated um, you easily misjudge a situation yeah when one is intoxicated one can misjudge a situation very easily you don't really have a grasp of the true nature of the situation you're in if, I don't know if you can remember being a little bit tipsy and thinking you were being very, very funny and entertaining. <laughs> yeah. And actually you weren't at all. People were kind of putting up with you, but it, you really weren't being very funny, but you thought you were. Yeah. So uh, that's the kind of thing that happens when you're intoxicated. Or maybe you started flirting with someone who really you should not have been flirting with this person, completely out of your league, or they're married already <laughs> or something. And you're going to get nowhere, but you begin to think that you're very attractive to this person. That's the kind of thing that happens when we're intoxicated. So intoxication gives us a very skewed kind of view of ourselves in a situation. I think that might be the, the connection. So the Buddha says this about all three of these, um, the first three. Uh, 
reflections. He then goes on to say, um, I'm subject to illness, I've not gone beyond illness. And then he talks about the intoxication of health. The typical healthy person's intoxication with their health. Yeah. And then uh, the third one is uh, intoxication with life. The typical person who's alive, their intoxication with life. And I want you to remember the line from that poem from earlier. Um, we never thought we would live forever, although we did. Yeah, that, that dual thing where you know that you're going to die, but you don't really know. Yeah, I find that very interesting, this kind of knowledge that we've got we're going to die, but we don't really live as if that were the case, this kind of dual thing there. Um, one of my heroes is um, the uh, philosopher of religion, uh, John Hick. Uh, in, in one of his essays, he, he writes about age, and he says that when you're young, you don't really think you're going to die. There's a line from a song that's been going through my head since I've been thinking about this. Um, I think it's Oasis. We're going to live forever. You know that? Um, young people don't really take on board that they're going to die. So what John Hicks says is as if they're immortal. Yeah, they're immortal. As we grow older, we begin to realise we are going to die, so we're mortal. And he says it's very interesting when we get a room full of young and old people. You get mortals and immortals together in the same room. I find that a very interesting way of thinking about it. So uh, intoxication with youth, with health and with life. And um, there's another sutta, the Sukhamala Sutta, where it's the one where the Buddha talks about... He goes into his early life. I've got it somewhere. Here we are. Here we are. Uh, he talks about his early life. You know, when he was a prince and he was pampered and so on. And he says, uh, he goes on to say, monks, there are these three forms of intoxication. Which three? Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. Drunk with the intoxication of youth, an instructed run-of-the-mill person, a patujana, engages in bodily misconduct, verbal misconduct and mental misconduct. Having engaged in mental misconduct, etc., etc., he or she, on the break of the, of the body after death, reappears in the plane of deprivation, the bad destination, the lower realms, in hell. So that's what the Buddha says about that. He goes on to say the same with intoxication with health and life. Then he goes on to say, drunk with the intoxication of youth, a monk leaves the training and returns to the lower life. Same with the intoxication of health. Same with the intoxication of life. And then comes a verse, and it's the same verse that the Buddha uses at the end of this, the Upajasana Sutra. I'm going to save that for a bit. Okay. Then, based on what line of reasoning, reasoning should one reflect that I will grow different, separate from all that is dear and appealing to me? There, there are beings who feel desire and passion for things they find dear and appealing. Because of that passion, they conduct themselves in a bad way in body, speech and mind, etc. So here, the first three reflections are antidotes to intoxication. The fourth one is an antidote to passion for things that you love and hold dear. So um, I want to mention another sutta now, the Piyajataka Sutta, which is very interesting. Hmm? Uh, um, I'm not coming back to the intoxication antidote, but I'm still in the middle of the, the antidote of passion. Is that okay? Um, the Piyajataka is very interesting. It's in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's number 106. And what happens is a householder, his young son has died. And the householder is completely distraught. And he goes to see the Buddha. 
And um, uh, because of his death, the father had no desire to work or to eat. He kept going to the cemetery and crying out, where have you gone, my only little child? Where have you gone, my only little child? So utterly distraught by this. So he went to the Buddha. And the Buddha says, householder, your faculties are not those of one who is steady in his own mind. There is an aberration in your faculties. Sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? I'm sure he didn't <laughs> say it quite like that. Must be the translation. But uh, the, the householder says, Lord, how could there not be an aberration in my faculties? My dear and beloved, dear and beloved, Pia Manapa, little son, my only child has died, etc., etc. What did the Buddha say? What did the Buddha say? He said, that's the way it is, householder. That's the way it is. Hmm. For sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair are born of one who is dear, come springing from one who is dear. Hits him with it, doesn't he? Very, very different, isn't it, from the famous episode of... Um, what's her name? Yeah. Kiss goes to me. Completely different. Does it work? It doesn't work. The Buddha's teaching really doesn't work this time. Uh, so the householder says, but Lord, who would ever think that sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair are born from one who is dear, come springing from one who is dear? Happiness and joy are born from one who is dear, come springing from one who is dear. So the householder, not delighting in the Buddha's words, rejecting the Blessed One's words, got up from his seat and left. As it happened, there were some gamblers close by, and this householder went and told the gamblers about the conversation. And the gamblers said, no, you're right, happiness and joy are born from one who is dear, the Buddha's wrong. So they all considered the Buddha to be wrong on this. It's strange, isn't it, that uh, this householder, who was completely distraught, still thought that happiness and joy is born from one who is dear. But he's right, of course. He is right. Happiness and joy are born from people who are dear to us and things that are dear to us. There's no doubt about that. He is right. The Buddha is also right, of course. You know, because separation from those things is extremely painful. They're both right. Yeah. And it's funny, I, I, I've puzzled for a while now on why, Piyajati, uh, why this man, whatever his name is, um, can't see. Because he is in that state of being utterly distraught. But he's still saying, no, no, that's not the case. I can only think that what he means is on the whole, taken in balance you get more happiness and joy than pain and sorrow and lamentation and so on from one who is dear. That's the only way it can make sense to me, unless he's completely mad. But the Buddha, I don't think the Buddha was weighing it up in that way. I don't think the Buddha was saying you get more pain from holding one who is dear than joy. I don't think that's what he meant. And I want to remind you all of the distinction now between doctrine and method first chapter of the survey, the Four Noble Truths. Uh, doctrinally, the first Noble Truth is a thing exists. The second Noble Truth is there's a reason, there's an origin for that ex um, thing existing. There's an end to that thing and there's a way leading to the end of that thing. That's the doctrine. The method is when you put suffering there. Suffering exists, that's methodological. And all of these, the first four of these um, reflections are method, yeah? They're not doctrine. The Buddha is trying to tell us that I know that things can be really great. I know that there's happiness and joy and pleasure that you get from things, but you just have to remember also that there's another side to it. That's all he's saying. And that's why should we, we should reflect often because we're all a little bit like this householder. We all tend to look away from the other side of the things that we grow very attached to and the things that we love. So it's a methodological teaching. The reflections are methodological. Okay. And the fifth one 
now based on what line of reasoning should one reflect, I'm the owner of my actions, etc. There are beings who conduct themselves in a bad way in body, speech and mind. But when they often reflect on karma in this way, um, uh, when they often reflect on that fact, that bad conduct in body, speech and mind will either be entirely abandoned or grow weaker. So those are the reasons for us reflecting. Okay, and finally, the autobiographical verse. The Buddha says, subject to birth, subject to ageing, subject to death, run-of-the-mill people, this is Tanisaro's translation of Pathogenus, or Pathogenus, uh, run-of-the-mill mill people are repelled by those who suffer from that to which they are subject. This is strange, but I'll come back to it. And if I were to be repelled by being subject to these things, it would not be fitting for me living as I do. As I maintain this attitude, knowing the Dharma without paraphernalia, Tanisaro's strange translation, come back to that in a moment, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth and life as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding, Tanisaro's translation for Nibbana, unbinding was clearly seen. There's now no way I could partake of sensual pleasures. Having followed the Dhamma, I will not return. So let me just go through this. Subject to birth, subject to ageing, subject to death, run-of-the-mill run of people are repelled by those who suffer from that to which they are subject. So I want to return to the Sukhamala Sutta now. It is somewhere around here. Here we are. The beginning of the Sukhamala Sutta, the Buddha says, Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. And he talks about his wonderful life where his father had lotus ponds made in the palace, etc., etc., three palaces, etc. Then he says, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me, when an untaught, run-of-the-mill person, himself subject to ageing, not beyond ageing, sees another who is aged, he is horrified, humiliated and disgusted. Oblivious to himself that he too is subject to ageing, not beyond ageing. And he goes to the same with um, illness and death. So the idea here is that when you're young, old people are repellent to you because you, know, you don't want that. You don't want to even think about it that this is going to happen to you. The same with illness and the same with death. So the word for repelled or disgusted is... Um, jigu chatti, to shun, avoid, loathe, detest, to be disgusted with or horrified at. There's a really good poem by Mary Oliver called Singapore, which is about uh, her being at Singapore Airport and going to the women's restroom, because she's American or Canadian, toilet in the women's toilet, and seeing in one of the cubicles a woman working for the airport uh, cleaning ashtrays with the bowl, the, the water from the bowl. Those big ashtrays that you get in airports. And uh, what uh, Mary Oliver says in the poem is... Um, uh, that disgust argued in her stomach and she felt in her pocket for her ticket. I love that line. You know, let me out of here. <laughs> Have I still got my way out? Where's my ticket out of this place? You know? And this is what we do, isn't it? We feel in our pocket for our ticket. Uh, it's like, oh, I don't want this. Oh, I've got my way out. It's okay. So this is the way we tend to think. And uh, this is part of intoxication, I think, going back to intoxication. When we're intoxicated with youth, we don't want to know about old age and disease and death. 
a sense of denial. So uh, what the Buddha says, run-of-the-mill people are repelled by those who suffer from that to which they are subject. I'm subject to it as well. And if I were to be repelled by being subject to these things, it would not be fitting for me living as I do. But I've just remembered that I've forgotten to go into the third part of the, uh, the sutta, which is where the Buddha says, the net, then you reflect on these things again. But this time you say, now a disciple of the noble ones considers this, I am not the only one subject to ageing who has not gone beyond ageing. To the extent that there are beings, past and future, passing away and re-arising, all beings are subject to ageing. Everyone is a dharma that ages. Yeah? No one has escaped from the fact of ageing. When he or she often reflects on this, the factors of the path take birth. He or she sticks with that path, develops it, cultivates it. As he or she sticks with that path, develops it and cultivates it, the fetters are abandoned, the obsessions destroyed. So that's important. And the, later on, Dianandi is going to lead the reflections in this way. And this is really very, very different when you reflect in this way. When you reflect on yourself, it's one thing. I am subject to ageing, I'm going to grow old, I am growing old at this very moment, etc, etc, going through all of the, the reflections. But then you reflect that I'm not the only one who's growing old. Everyone's growing old and what I tend to do is I think about everyone I know, my friends, my girlfriend, uh, my family, my daughter. What a thought, my daughter is growing old. Uh, Everyone I know, we're all growing old. And then you do the same with illness. Everyone's going to get ill at some point, if they're not ill already. Um, we're all, everyone is going to die. Everyone is going to be separated from everyone else. And uh, one time when I was doing it, it was, uh, I, I didn't exactly have a vision. Um, but I had a very strong sense of us all coming together for a short time, in this very short life. 25,000, 30,000 days if we're lucky, short life. And just being here for a short life, making the very most of our life together, but then being parted. I'm going to be parted from my daughter forever after this. My girlfriend forever. I'm going to be parted from you at a certain point. And there's, I got this very strong sense of us all just coming together for a short while and then phew, off we go new lives with a whole bunch of new people, presumably, unless we all meet together. Another poem by Joyce Sutpen, Living in the Body. Body is something you need in order to stay on this planet, and you only get one. Obviously, doesn't believe in rebirth. And no matter which one you get, it will not be satisfactory. It will not be beautiful enough. It will not be fast enough. It will not keep on for days at a time, but will pull you down into a sleepy swamp and demand apples and coffee and chocolate cake. <laughs> Does, doesn't it? Body is a thing you have to carry from one day into the next. Always the same eyebrows over the same eyes, in the same skin when you look in the mirror, and the same creaky knee when you get up from the floor, and the same wrist under the watch band. The change that you can make are small and costly. Better to leave it as it is. Body is a thing that you have to leave eventually. You know that because you've seen others do it. Others who were once like you, living inside their pile of bones and flesh, smiling at you, loving you, leaning in the doorway, talking to you for hours, and then one day they are gone. No forwarding address. No forwarding address. This is the thing that really got me in that uh, reflection, that we come together, we love each other, we enjoy each other's company, we become very attached, and then phew, we're off somewhere else, who knows where. No forwarding address.
So finally, the Buddha says, as I maintain this attitude, knowing the Dharma without paraphernalia, Tanisawa can be very idiosyncratic at times, no paraphernalia, uh, nirupadi, free from passions or attachments. So what it really means, as I maintain this attitude, knowing the Dharma, free from attachment and passion. Um, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth and life as one who sees renunciation as rest. Renunciation, nekama, I really love that word, giving up the world and leading the holy life, nekama. And uh, rest, kemato, from kema, full of peace, safe, tranquil, calm. Shelter, place of security, tranquility, home of peace, the serene. So Kema is an epithet of Nibbana. So um, I said at the beginning this, that uh, Sabuti and Bhante wanted us to begin reflecting on these five things and it was on the heading, under the heading of um, spiritual death. Just at the very end there, there's a hint of spiritual rebirth. As I maintain this attitude, knowing the Dharma without attachment, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth and life. As one who sees the giving up of things, the renunciation of things as my true refuge. For me, energy arose. Energy, usaho, strength, power, energy, endeavour, goodwill. Unbinding, nibbana, freedom was clearly seen. There's now no way I could partake of sensual pleasures. Having followed the holy life, I will not return.